book of Acts chapter 1. This morning we're beginning a new series on Sunday morning uh, through the book of Acts. By the way, if you're with us this morning and um, I failed to say hi to you, hi, <laughs> welcome, good to have you here today. And uh, if you're visiting with us today, on behalf of everyone here, a special hi to you. We're glad you're with us. There are men coming up the aisles right now. If you don't have a Bible and uh, they have Bibles in their hands, you wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hand. It will be marked to the place we're studying today for your convenience. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day that he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And therefore, when they heard that they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men, angels, who stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the marvel of this book called the Bible. We thank you that you, infinite in wisdom, infinite in knowledge, were able to take and write something knowing our severe limitations that we cannot track with infinity on anything. And you, yet you have taken these truths in a way that reveal you, Lord, and reveal your heart, and yet in a way that we can understand and be built up and understand as much as we can this side of heaven. And we thank you for this book, and we thank you for all the things that are revealed to us from your throne in this passage this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would open these truths up to us, that you would give us a fresh understanding of them and a fresh appreciation, Lord, for all that is ours because of you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you, please allow me just a few moments here to give you a brief introduction to the book of Acts before we get to our main focus of this morning, which is to take a look at Jesus' ascension um, into heaven as recorded in verses 9 through 11. 
The book of Acts was written by a man by the name of Luke. He is the same author of, as the gospel according uh, to Luke. Both the gospel according to Luke, Luke and the book of Acts were written by Luke to a man by the name of Theophilus, as he's mentioned in verse 1. Theophilus' name means lover of God. His name is made up of two Greek words, theos, which means God, and then a variation of phileo, which means love. His name means lover of God. And the gospel of Luke, we're told in verse 1 and 2, is a record of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. It, was a, it is a record of his birth into the world, his incarnation. It is a record of his life, of his ministry, of his teaching, of his miracles, and then also a record of his death and his burial and his resurrection and also a record of his ascension into heaven. The book of Acts is a continuation of the gospel according to Luke and a continuation of the doing and the teaching of Jesus now after his ascension through the person of the Holy Spirit operating within this glorious thing called the body of Christ, called Christians all around the world. And there is a very real sense in which the book of Acts continues into this day. I remember when I was a very, very new Christian, I was attending a Calvary Chapel in Napa, California, and um, I had barely worked the gold off of um, the edges of my new Bible. Now they don't do that as much as they did back then, and it wasn't because I was reading it so fast, I just turned the pages, and you'd hear that little tear and the little thing and keep going. So very new. And my wife was teaching in children's ministry, and I went upstairs to try and find her within the building, and there was this poster in one of the youth rooms, and it said, be a part of Acts 29. I thought, wow, I want to be a part of everything that Jesus is about. So I'm standing right in front of the poster, and I open up my Bible, and I start to look for Acts chapter 29. Now, many of you know there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts, so everyone that is going by is watching me, turning in my Bible, trying to find chapter 29, which they know doesn't exist, but I don't. And then, well, when you've been put down, sit down, that's all. I mean, so the <laughs> beginning of a long series of humbling experiences in my life. But when I realized there is no Acts 29, I realized, oh, of course, this is what they're saying, and that is that the book of Acts is a continues into our very day. And obviously, I remembered it, and because I'm telling you about it today. And that's what the book of Acts does. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. He accompanied Paul on some of his missionary journeys. He was a physician. And in Acts chapter 16, the personal pronouns that Luke uses, he uses words or he uses words like we, he uses words like us, which indicates that at that point he is traveling with Paul on his missionary uh, journeys, and he joins Paul at some particular point in time. Paul was, um, a, at this point in time in his ministry, by the time Luke joins him in his missionary journeys, he is suffering from some physical problems. And uh, we don't have exact details with it, but he was having some physical problems in his life. It isn't unlikely that Theophilus came to know the Lord through some influence of Paul 
And as he became a Christian, out of gratitude toward Paul and out of a concern for the Apostle Paul's health and also for the Great Commission, that he released Luke, perhaps his own personal physician, to serve Paul in this way. Today, um, I have... I have the utmost respect for doctors, maybe because I know more doctors now than I've ever known in my life. And, um, and just in awe, I think about the education they have to get. They go to university, and then they've got to go to medical school, and then this debt they incur to treat people like me, and then they've got an internship that they have to go through, and then they've got to run a business like everybody else is running a business. I, when I, when I leave, most of the time when I leave a doctor's a dentist's office, I shake their hand. I say, thank you for going to dental school. Thank you for going to medical school. Nobody else is thankful I am. But that's today, you know, we, we esteem them very highly, and they're esteemed highly within our culture. In the ancient world, most physicians were slaves. It was that rich people, having a number of slaves, would either buy a young man or they would own already and notice that this person has an aptitude to learn in this way. And then they would pay for their training and they would then learn all of the medical theory of the day and all and practices, and they would become the family physician. It wasn't like somebody starting a practice today and people come from all over. Rich families had their own doctors. And so it isn't unlikely that Theophilus was a wealthy man and he had Luke as his family physician and he released him now to be a help to the apostle Paul. The Luke, we're told, in the book of Colossians, was very beloved by the Apostle Paul. Luke is also the only Gentile writer in the New Testament, uh, writing by the Holy Spirit both the book of Luke and also uh, the book of, of Acts, the only Gentile in the, in the New Testament. Now, Luke explains to us here that there was a 40-day period between Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. I don't know if you've ever just like stopped and thought about that. To me, here's how it all go comes down if I'm in charge. And, and that is, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He's dead for three days. He rises again on the third day, the Sunday morning. And so there is his resurrection. For me, the perfect place to put the ascension is then on Sunday night. And boom, 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 what a weekend it was, and he ascends back into glory. So when Luke tells me there's a 40-day gap between the day of his resurrection and then his ascension, it makes me wonder why the gap? Why was this necessary to be, uh, to be so? He tells us in the passage, in order that he, Jesus, might present himself alive as an evidence of his resurrection to the apostles through many, many infallible proofs. He appeared to them repeatedly over the course of 40 days, providing them with these infallible proofs of his resurrection. So infallible that 10 out of the 11 apostles would die a martyr's death. They would be put to death for their faith in Jesus. 
and believing in his death, his burial, his resurrection, the salvation that is found in those three great uh, facts of human history and faith in those three great facts. Remember, Judas by this time has betrayed Jesus. There's only 11 apostles at that point in time. Ten of them would die a martyr's death as witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, unwilling to deny that fact in history. And only the apostle John would die a natural death, though uh, Herod or, or Nier, Caesar Nero attempted to martyr him by boiling him, we're told in church history, boiling him in a vat of oil. And so it was to deeply embed within them the reality through infallible proofs, undeniable proofs concerning his resurrection. It was also in order that he might give the apostles, we're told here, more further commandments. And so, doubtless, Jesus spoke to them commandments about an instruction concerning the new way that things would operate with him, no longer being physically present with them as he was for those three and a half years, but now he is going to leave them. It's a new way of doing things, and so Jesus begins to instruct them in a new phase in the history uh, of, of God's work, and that's called uh, the church age. And so, he begins to talk to them now about how things are going to operate under the Holy Spirit, the direction of the Spirit in the church age. A third reason for the 40 days before the ascension was in order to speak to the disciples pertaining the kingdom of God, in order to encourage their faith and to disciple them for what lay ahead and in establishing this thing called uh, the church, again, the body of Christ. You remember so, this, this period of 40 days is kind of like a refresher course for them, reinforcing in their hearts and their minds the things that he had already been speaking to them for the three and a half years of his public ministry because they didn't get a lot of things. He had spoken to them repeatedly. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be very badly treated by the religious leaders there. They will crucify me. And I will be buried, and I will rise again on the third day. On the third day following his death, not a single apostle was at the tomb on that morning. Only the women were there. Not a single apostle. Gives me a lot of hope. <laughs> God, who God chooses to use. Up to this point, they knew a lot, but they didn't believe a lot. And so Jesus comes to them now and reinforces all the things that he had already spoken to them, but now speaking it to them after the fact of his death, his burial, his resurrection. In other words, if I can't get you to understand it ahead of time, then I'll take what I can get. I'll get you to understand it looking back on that. And so he reinforces all of these things that they didn't fully understand, they needed to understand, while at the same time instructing them for what lay ahead for them in the book of Acts. Now, in recounting these events for Theophilus, there are two specific things that um, Luke wants to enlarge on in the chapter. One is the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at in the future, and the second is Jesus' ascension, which we're going to study here this morning. Now, notice the specifics of Jesus' ascension in verse 9. He was taken up, and a cloud received him 
out of their sight. We know from verse 12 that Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. In verse 9, we're told that he was taken up. It does not say that he went up. There was no jetpack. There was no anything like of his initiative on any of this. He, it doesn't say that he went up. It says that he was taken up. He did not initiate the event. It implies that God the Father was the agent who took Jesus back into heaven. We're told further in verse 9 that a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus was received back into heaven. That's what the ascension is about, receiving Jesus back into heaven. The two phrases that are used, he was taken up and a cloud received him, is intended to communicate heaven's excitement and eagerness to have him back in the midst. Jesus has been separated from that heavenly scene during the 33 and a half years of his uh, incarnation. And he's, he wasn't the only one that paid a price related to that in terms of sacrifice. Heaven paid a price to send that Savior into the world. And now here he is. He is coming back into heaven. And it's the communication of God the Father, of heaven itself, that whatever this world or whatever mankind or whatever individual people think of Jesus, that he is greatly beloved and he is greatly prized in heaven. I'll tell you, I am so thankful that when I die, I am going to a place that loves Jesus. I wouldn't want to go to any other place than to go to a place that loves Jesus. And I know that you feel the same way. There's something wrong with a place that doesn't love Jesus. He speaks about the cloud there. And this cloud wasn't just kind of a random cloud that was, you know, passing by the Mount of Olives on that uh, spring or summer day uh, 2,000 years ago. This is a cloud that is a specific cloud. It's a cloud that comes from God. And it was doubtless, in my mind at least, the Shekinah glory cloud of God representing the presence of God. In the Old Testament, God's presence was referred to, or it was demonstrated rather, in what is known as his Shekinah glory. Excuse me. At the dedication of the, the tabernacle when it was built, and all of it was offered unto the Lord with the sacrifices. God's glory, his Shekinah glory, fell upon that tabernacle, and it represented his favor. It represented his presence. Later on, when Solomon built the temple, God did the same thing to express the same thing. And so God showing up here in this way, with this cloud, it spoke of the presence of God the Father and of his tender love for Jesus. You remember Jesus, perhaps on the, the night before his crucifixion in John chapter 17, he is praying to the Father. And he, one of the things that he prays to the Father there is, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And here in the ascension, God answers that prayer 
of his beloved son. And the last thing that those disciples witnessed of Jesus was to see him wrapped up in the fullness of God's glory, raising him up into heaven. Now, the ascension of Jesus is intended to teach every single one of us in this room something. It's not just this random event in human history. It's a teachable moment. It's, it's intended to teach each of us something. I think that typically for us as Christians, I don't say it critically. I say it as an observation to my own life. But typically, we're very, very well-versed on uh, Jesus' incarnation, his virgin birth. We're well-versed upon his life, his ministry. We're well-versed upon his death upon the cross. We're well-versed related to his resurrection. But when it, becomes, when it comes to the ascension, it, that gets a little more sketchy for us, typically, as Christians, the understanding of the significance of it, and yet it was the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. But even if it's overlooked sometimes by us, it is not overlooked by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. Fully 20 times in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts, the Bible speaks about, the Holy Spirit speaks about the ascension of Jesus. So there's something about this ascension that is intended to be a significant part of our understanding of God and then out of our understanding of God to become a part of our appreciation of God and then our worship of God. Tonight we're going to have a time of worshiping the Lord, and we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper. We're going to pray for some different things going on. When we come back tonight and we worship the Lord tonight, if our understanding of the ascension is deeper than it was before we came into the room today, we will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth in a measure that's greater than ever before. Our, our worship doesn't come out of nowhere. Our worship comes out of our understanding of him and then our appreciation of him. And the more that you know about him, of course, the more that we want to worship him and that we want to bless him. So this ascension is important uh, for us. And so if the ascension is so significant to the Holy Spirit, then I want to know why. Why is the ascension so important? And I once heard Warren Wiersbe speak on the ascension, and he said, you can wrap the ascension up in three words, three simple words. Number one, exaltation. Number two, edification. And number three, condemnation. Now, trust me, as I studied this week, I tried to find a better way to put it so I wouldn't have to reference Warren Wearsby. But listen, when you hit the home run, you hit the home run, and you can't encapsulate the ascension any better than that. It is about the exaltation of Jesus. It is about the edification of the church, and it speaks condemnation to the world. So, first, it resulted in Jesus' exaltation. Again, as I mentioned, on the night before his crucifixion, uh, Jesus cried out to the Father, and he said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. At the ascension, Jesus simply returned to his former glory. Before Jesus came into the world, he dwelt in heaven. 
Heaven is his home. That's where he had been from eternity. And he laid aside his glory to come and to provide salvation to mankind. And he desired once again, having been 33 and a half years in this world, he desired to wear that glory once again. When he came into the world, he never laid aside his deity. He never did that. But he did lay aside his glory. And at his ascension, he returned to his former glory. And the Bible speaks about that. There's lots of verses that we could read concerning it, but let me read a couple to you. The Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, he gives us a description of our glorified Jesus in the Revelation. And John writes there, and he said, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And what you see, write it in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then John said, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Think about the intimacy of the personal relationship as revealed in the Gospels that the apostle John had with Jesus in his incarnation. And yet when he sees Jesus again in his heavenly glory, he was completely undone. And Jesus in his glory still possessed the same heart, the same mind, the same love as he did in his incarnation, but now he has an altogether different glory. John wrote further of Jesus' second coming in Revelation 19. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him, speaking of Jesus, was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. 
He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And why is that in the Bible except to teach us that we must not continue to view Jesus today as still possessing the limitations that he took upon himself in coming into this world taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, is how Paul put it, and in coming into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. He is no longer the suffering Savior. He is the conquering King, and He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords, and He is in the fullness of His glory and exaltation. And that's our Jesus this morning. That's our king this morning. That's who holds us in the palm of his hand. That's the one we bring our prayers and our great needs to. That's him in the fullness of his glory. And one day we'll see him in the fullness of that glory. Jesus' ascension was also heaven's stamp of approval on all that Jesus taught and all that Jesus did is a represent, representative of the Father. You remember Jesus said, I don't say anything except what he tells me to say. I don't do anything except what he tells me to do. That was the submission of the Son to the Father in his incarnation. And if Jesus had in any way deviated in anything that he taught or anything that he did or if he had misrepresented God the Father, in any way there would be no ascension. The fact that the Father took Jesus, brought him, and ascended him into the glory of heaven was heaven's stamp of approval on everything that Jesus was, everything that he is, everything he ever did, and everything that he ever taught. He had finished what he had come into the world to do, and this was God's way of saying, mission accomplished, well done. Now, let's turn second to the effect and the importance of the ascension upon us as Christians and the fact that that ascension results in the edification of Christians. How is Jesus's, the knowledge of Jesus' ascension into heaven an edification to me as a Christian? And the word edification means to build up. How does this build me up? because of what the Bible reveals to us that Jesus is doing in heaven because of his ascension on our behalf. We don't need to know everything that he's doing in heaven, but the Bible tells us plenty. His ascension results in our edification in that it allowed him to send the Holy Spirit to us. He needed to ascend to the Father to send the Holy Spirit. John 16, Jesus said, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? 
But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus spoke elsewhere in John chapter 14 concerning the Holy Spirit to us as Christians. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's a name for the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Put yourself in the place of those apostles with Jesus, three and a half years. He ascends into heaven, and they already didn't do that great when he was there physically present with them. Now he's given them the great commission to make disciples of all of the nations in the world, and now he is gone. And Jesus knew that they would feel like orphans. Orphans in the ancient world were hopeless. They were helpless. It was this, the worst feeling you could have in life, and that's how they felt. He's gone now. How in the world are we ever going to do what he has called us to do? And Jesus, understanding this, he comforted them with the promise that his departure would mean the sending of the Holy Spirit as another helper. And when he talks about another helper, the word that he uses for another in the original language, he uses the word that means another of the same kind. In the original language, there is a separate word that is used, can be used, that means another of a different kind. But Jesus doesn't use that word. He speaks of the Holy Spirit as another comforter or another helper after the first kind. And who was the first comforter? The first comforter was Jesus. He was the first helper. In other words, the helper that Jesus was going to send would be just like him. That's what he's telling the disciples. And for three and a half years, Jesus was sufficient for every single thing they faced as apostles and as disciples and every help that Jesus was in their lives during those three and a half years, the Holy Spirit will be in our life. Jesus was the one for our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the one for the church age because the Holy Spirit is able to do in the church age what Jesus could not do in his incarnation, and that is to be everywhere all at the same time inhabiting uh, everybody's hearts. Jesus, in his incarnation, he was only able to be one place at a time. Now this gospel is going to go out into the whole world. Now there needs to be another helper, the Holy Spirit, who is able to indwell every single Christian fully, mightily, no matter where God takes us around the world. The Holy Spirit is the one for the church age. Jesus' ascension means, second, not only was it, does it edify us, you say, how does it edify us? It edifies us in that he, was, he then sent the Holy Spirit. 
But second, his ascension means that we have a high priest who now sits at the right hand of the Father. And the writer of the book of Hebrews speaks of this in chapter 8. Now, this is the main point, he said, of the things that we're saying. We have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Jesus sits currently at the right hand of the Father. It is the place of significance, the place of power and honor and authority, and thus it reminds us that our Savior, our Jesus, occupies the supreme place of supreme power in the universe. The world talks about knowing people in high places. The ascension reminds us as Christians that we have a friend in high places, and we have a, fr and we have a friend who is a high priest to us in high places. Which brings us to the third edifying factor of the ascension, and that is that his ascension means that we have an advocate or a defense attorney with the Father in the face of Satan's accusations against us. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John wrote, My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate, speaking of Jesus, a defense lawyer, so to speak, a paracletus, one that comes alongside us to help. We have a defense lawyer with the Father, Jesus the righteous. And so, an advocate with the Father, one who comes alongside to help us, one who speaks to the Father on our defense. And here's the picture that John is thinking about. It's a courtroom. I don't want to be in courtroom but it's a courtroom, and there's a judge in that courtroom, and the judge is God. And there's a prosecuting attorney in that courtroom, and his name is Satan. One of the names of Satan is the accuser of the brethren. There's a defendant in that courtroom, me. The Bible teaches that I sin on a daily basis, and I don't doubt it at all. As much as I want to be like Christ every single day, I am not like Christ every single day. And it's true of all of us. And so Satan takes notice of something that I've done, some sin, and he brings it to the Father. He brings the accusation, and he lays the case that is, it's watertight. I'm as guilty as guilty can be. I have no hope in and of myself on that scene. Everything looks hopeless, not only for me, but you when you find yourself in the same place. And then John says, Jesus, our defense attorney, rises up in that heavenly courtroom, and he comes to our defense, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of his righteousness imputed to us and he declares in that courtroom, charge that to my account. I died for that sin to be forgiven. And Jesus never loses a case in that courtroom. Let's give him praise. Again, sometimes it's in our mind we think, well, Jesus was resurrected, he ascended into heaven. We know that he's coming back again someday, but that he's 
hardly doing anything up there. And the purpose of what is brought out into the Scriptures is to realize how active he is for us. Just my sins on a daily basis will keep him active in just the courtroom aspect of heaven, much less to speak of all of our sins and the sins of the whole body of Christ around the world. And yet that's the position that he takes, and it's wonderful to know that we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus ascended into heaven also in order to make intercession for us, Hebrews chapter 7. And therefore, he also is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for him, for them. Romans chapter 8, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. I am thankful for every single person who prays for me. And I know you feel the same way about every single person who prays for you. It's wonderful to be on people's prayer lists. It's wonderful to have a prayer team that any need that happens in your life, you can contact the church office or go online and put it on to where our prayer team, 100, 200, I don't know how many now, begin to pray immediately related to your situation. It's wonderful to have people praying for us. And what a blessing and what an edification it is to us. But I don't know that there's a greater blessing to our heart than to be reminded that Jesus never ceases to intercede for you personally. He never stops. He ever lives to pray for you. There's not a moment in your life that you're living that he is not personally interceding for you. What a blessing. What an edification the ascension is to know that he isn't just up there twiddling his thumbs and we're waiting for him to come back, but what he's doing for us in the meantime. And then he ascended into heaven in order to prepare heaven as a future home for us. And it's going to be something when we see it one day. His ascension reminds us that heaven is real. It reminds us that he's coming back for us. And this ascension of Jesus is intended to inspire every single one of us as Christians with the supreme confidence in the power of God, the wisdom of God, the love of God for us. Jesus, again, it isn't like Jesus is just gone. And boy, rats, I'm in this weird place. I mean, I wish I could have been there when he was there for the 33 and a half years. It would have been really great to have, you know, known him uh, then. And it's going to be great one day when he returns. And, and these are the two great pockets in human history, but I don't know that I'm going to see either one of those. No, his ascension means that he is doing great things for us right now, each and every one of us right now. He is so indescribably active for our good in that heavenly scene. 
But let me close with this, and that is what Jesus' ascension communicates to the world, and it does communicate condemnation. Why is that? Jesus taught the disciples, and he said in John 16, but now I go away to him who sent me. And we read it earlier. None of you asks me where you're going, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, and if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he's come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of righteousness, or of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And concerning the unsaved world, the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of three things, of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And of sin, Jesus said, because they do not believe in me. Jesus did not say that the Holy Spirit would come into the world supremely to convict the world of sins, plural, but that he will convict, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, singular. And what is the single great sin that concerns the Holy Spirit so much? Jesus told us because they do not believe in me. And that is the single great concern of the Holy Spirit concerning every single person in this room and every single person in this world, that none of us would be guilty of having failed to put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And let me say this because it's so important to understand about this very subject Technically speaking, no one ever ends up in hell one day because of their sins, plural, but rather for their sin, singular, for the rejecting, the sin of rejecting Jesus, who is the only one who can cleanse us of our sins. All other sins can be forgiven. All of the sins are readily forgiven, but there's no forgiveness for the sin of failing to trust in the only Savior who can provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And thus it is what we do with Christ that determines our eternal destinies. And that decision alone, not all of the sins that we began to become conscious of at the age of three and all the way up to the day that we're alive right now, that's not what condemns a person. It is a failure to trust in Christ. And those, Jesus said, who do not believe in the Son, they will go into a lost eternity, not because they're sinners. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. But because they have refused God's remedy for their sin, and that is a faith in Christ. He said the world would the Holy Spirit would come into the world to convict or to condemn the world of righteousness. And Jesus declared that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness, but he went on to explain what he meant by that. He said, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Jesus' ascension into heaven 
is a communication to every single person in the world that only his righteousness is acceptable for heaven. Only his rightness, only his right onness, only his perfection fits us to be able to enter into that heavenly scene. And it is the righteousness that we receive from him, and he is happy to give to us when we trust in him as our Savior. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, and he that is the Father gave him, that is Jesus, who knew, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And when we put our faith in Christ, that righteousness of Christ is then put into our account. And then finally, Jesus said of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, and the ruler of this world is the devil. And when Jesus was on that cross and that death, that burial, that resurrection, the three greatest events in human history, and Jesus provided them to us, Satan took everything that he had, his entire realm, and threw it at Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way through to the resurrection, and he was defeated through the cross and the resurrection and lost that great battle and openly did so. And one day, the Bible teaches, Satan will be judged for his rebellion against God, and his rebellion will finally be brought to a complete end. The Holy Spirit convicts people that there's a judgment that's coming after this life. And just as Satan, in all of his power, in all of his glory, in all of his demonic beauty, failed in his rebellion against God and was judged, so too God will judge every single man and woman who chooses to follow in Satan's footsteps by choosing to live a life of rebellion against God. The only way to escape is by putting our faith in Christ. The ascension speaks condemnation to the world. Not unto damnation, but so that we will understand how serious our sin is and turn to God. The Holy Spirit's presence in this world today is a judgment on this world because the Holy Spirit shouldn't be in the world today in this capacity. Jesus should be in this world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him, and he came to his own, and his, world, and his own did not receive him. And Jesus came into this world to reign, and he should still be reigning but the world did not want him, and so he returned to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit in judgment. 
and the presence of the Holy Spirit in this world, in this capacity, is a judgment upon the world. The Holy Spirit should not be here. Jesus should be here. And he should have been able to establish his reign 2,000 years ago and have it continue on into this age and forever and ever. Did he need to come? Did he need to die? Did he need to be buried? Did he need to rise from the dead? Yes, he needed to do all of those things, but it doesn't make the world any less guilty for having rejected him. And so the ascension, that's the significance of it. It resulted in the glorious exaltation of our Savior and of our friend. It results in the edification of Christians in unbelievable, indescribable ways that we live in all day, every day, and sometimes don't recognize, at least I don't. And it is a condemnation of the Christ-rejecting world around us. And I think it's wonderful to realize that he is exalted he is in that heavenly scene. He is ascended, and he is using the fullness of his wisdom and his power and his love to build us up as the body of Christ, to do it individually and to do it corporately. There's an old saying that the sovereignty of God, the almightiness of God, would scare us to death if we did not know that in Christ he will only use his almightiness and his sovereignty for our good. And that's what he wants to do. If you sit here this morning, this may be your very first time ever in church or your thousandth time, but you have not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you want to today, and Jesus wants to be all of this and more to you in your life. You bring every need to him. He's not afraid of your needs. And you bring all of your big, bad old self to him, too. No problem you have scares him at all. He loves you, and he wants to save you today. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women who love you. They care about you and your soul, and they'd love for you to pray with you to begin that relationship with God here this morning. And it's all there for the asking. And it's all there for the receiving because God has made it a free gift. Take advantage of the opportunity this morning. This life waits for you. And God longs to save you into it. Well, is the ascension a good thing for us? <laughs> I think so. Let's give him a round of applause for how good he's been to us. Well, let's stand together and we'll bless him right now in prayer. Heavenly Father, Jesus, we are humbled by you. Jesus, we thank you that when you long to be clothed with the glory that you once had, it wasn't just to get out of this crazy, messed up world and get back into heaven where you belong. 
but you wanted to go into heaven because you knew there was a whole bunch of things that we needed in a different way for this church age and the book of Acts and all the way into this room today. And we thank you for your ascension. We thank you how active you are for our good, even at this moment. And what it means to us and our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength to know it. We bless you. We give you praise. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to be having a communion service. We'll have an extended period of worship. Begins at 6 o'clock tonight. We'll get to spend some time in prayer over some specific needs and then partake of the Lord's Supper together after.